Corner Fringe Ministries presents Discover Your Calling into Israel, Part 4 by Daniel Joseph. Enjoy! In Part 4 of seeking to discover your calling into a holy nation, the nation of Israel. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at some very important church history, history which we have found to it has greatly impacted the way modern-day Christendom practices and views its faith today. And in the process of exploring our church history, we discovered, unfortunately, that the church has, in fact, forsaken her Hebraic roots. She has adopted customs and practices that cannot be found in Scripture, while at the same time, they abandoned other doctrines and principles that are found in the Scripture, that are found to, to be commanded upon us, that to be imposed upon us, that we should be observing. For example, the seventh-day Sabbath. It's right in the Ten Commandments. On the seventh day you shall rest. Remember the Sabbath day, Zachor, the only commandment that starts out with remember. And yet, that is the very one that has been forgotten. We look at the festivals of God. Instead of celebrating the festivals of God, they have abandoned these festivals and are starting to practice other festivals with pagan roots. No longer do we find that the church distinguishes between clean and unclean. Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, the Lord outlays the foods that are clean that we should put into our holy temples and the, fe- the foods that are unclean that we should stay away from. In short, the church has abandoned the law of God. Because at that, we find the church is debilitated. The church is incapacitated. It's in a spiritual vegetative state. It cannot care for itself. And why do I say that? Do you remember how scripture defines sin? You go to 1 John 3, 4, we find the definition of sin. It is transgression of the law. It's transgression of the law. In other words, sin is lawlessness. Now follow this to its logical conclusion. If you throw out the very thing that identifies sin, that God has given us to identify sin, if you throw that out, how do you identify sin? And where does that leave you? Leaves you incapacitated. Paul says in Romans 7, 7, he says, I would not have known sin except through the law. That's what Paul says. I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, thou shall not covet. It's through the law, it's through the voice of God. Remember, going back to Deuteronomy 28, what is the voice of God? It is equated to all the commandments. It's equated to Torah, to the law of God. That's literally said in Scripture, it is the voice of God. Let me take you back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned. It was the first... The first disobedient act was actually a food law. They were told, you can't eat of this tree. And what did they do? They ate of the tree. What happened? Well, they discovered that they were naked, so they sow fig leaves. But it was so fascinating, if you go back and read the story, they're walking in the midst of the garden, but then what happens? They hear God in the midst of the garden. They hear his voice. And the Lord cries out to them, where are you? They hid themselves. We were scared, we were ashamed, because we heard your voice. See, that's what the law of God does for us. When the law of God speaks, it exposes our shame. 
It exposes your sin. And that's the beauty of the law. But if you allow Satan to take away your ability to identify sin, you're going to be left incapacitated. This is exactly where Satan wants you to be. And this is what happens. All of this stuff happens. Why? When you go back to the beginning, to the early second century, and you find that you divide law from grace. And you do that, it gives birth to all sorts of heretical children. For example, anti-Semitism. Let me give you a snapshot of the condition of the church. I don't often quote statistics because there's so many variables involved in how the actual numbers are derived. They can obviously be called into question. But I have to share this with you. In 2002, George Barna wrote a book known as The State of the Church. And it's a book that examines the behaviors and the beliefs of the church. But in this book, he provides us with some interesting findings regarding Christians and their knowledge of Scripture. I want to share these with you. 48% Christians could not name the four Gospels. These are 48%. These are Christians. These are self-professing, born-again believers. Could not name the four Gospels. 52% cannot identify more than two or three of Jesus' disciples. 60% of American Christians cannot even name five of the Ten Commandments. Not even over half, over one out of every two believers can't even name five of the Ten Commandments? Right here is the problem with the church. It's, de- it's totally debilitated. It's incapacitated. You wonder why, as Darren alluded to today, you wonder why we have gay pastors? Stuff that is, for, that is directly condemned in Scripture. And you wonder why we have flocks that actually come to listen to them? Because they don't even know half of the Ten Commandments, the law of God. This is why divorce rate in church is as high as it is in the world. You have husbands and wives committing adultery. You have broken homes. This is why you have paganism that can creep in. This is why Satan can come in and creep in. When asking graduating high school born-again Christians, over 50% of them thought Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. How scary is that? What does this tell you? This tells you the parents are failing as godly instructors. You have been instructed, parents, to train up your child in the way that he should go. You are instructed, Deuteronomy 6, to teach them the commandments of God. Oh, but I forgot. We've thrown that away. And now Sodom and Gomorrah are apparently husband and wife. You see the problem here. The church is failing. The congregants are failing. They are failing their children. Generation after generation gets more wicked. 61% of American Christians think the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. 71% of American Christians thinks God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. And I can tell you without lying, I've actually come across this very thing. So when I read this, I chuckled because they think it's in there. Based upon these things, Mr. Barna gives this commentary. He says, Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't know what it says. And because they don't know it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. 
We are living in a nation of biblical illiterates. They don't know good from evil. It's the Bible that tells us what is right and wrong, but they don't read it. They don't know it. They may revere it, but they have no idea what it says. The Bible is the measuring line, and yet we find churches and even pastors have no idea what is being spoken. With all due respect to Mr. Barna and his fine work, I don't need these statistics to tell me the church is debilitated, that the church is in trouble. Just a mere conversation with pastors, with congregants who call themselves Christians will tell you this. Tragedy, my friends, has befallen the church. She has forsaken her Hebraic roots, forsaken explicit, direct commandments of God, the instructions of God, instructions which are righteous and holy, and she has embraced destruction. And Paul said it was coming. 2 Timothy 3.1, But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers. You remember that passage we read in Ezekiel 22? What were the things that they were, the Lord was coming out to condemn the priests for profaning his holy name? Hiding their eyes from his Sabbath. For not distinguishing between clean and unclean. Blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power from such people, turn away. We are told that in the last days, these men who are going to embrace all these abominable acts, they will look pious. They will have a form of godliness, but they'll be embracing things which are abominable in the sight of God. We are living in what I believe to be the days of Noah. We are living in a wicked and evil generation where the church has actually glorified and embraced lawlessness. And then they call it righteousness. Good has become evil. Evil has become good. You look at Sodom. There's the Torah portion today. Something Darren alluded to today, and you need to pick up on it. It is so crucial. Do you understand what the precursor to God's judgment coming upon a land is? Do you know what the precursor is? It is this. It is overt sinning. Unashamed sin. Openly going out. Instead of people committing homosexuality behind closed doors, we hold parades. Instead of being ashamed of killing innocent children, we make it a governmental law. And we fund to kill innocent children. This country, America, is, I'm telling you, coming under judgment. This is the precursor when you have these open sins. Let me read to you uh, Isaiah 3. I didn't put it up here. They just look at their countenance. It witnesses against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon themselves. You will reap what you sow. This land will reap what it sows. The precursor has already been shot. The flare has been shot to say judgment is coming. So if you're wondering if judgment's going to come or not, just look. 
Look at the open, defiling acts of these human beings going directly spitting in the face of God. Having said that, I want to go back to last week. I want to get back to some church history. And I want to proceed. There are some things that uh, I didn't get to last week. If you remember, we were talking about Martin Luther. Remember? Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, the father of Protestantism, uh, definitely, uh, without any dispute, a, a historic figure that has played a very significant role in shaping the evangelical world of today. Significant role. Well, we ended off last week looking at a statement by Martin Luther regarding the Jewish people, the people of God, in his book in which he published in 1523 that Jesus was born a Jew. I want to reread this because we've got to put what is about to come into context. Those fools, the papists, bishops, sophists, monks, have formerly so dealt with the Jews that every good Christian would rather have been a Jew. And if I had been a Jew and seen such stupidity and such blockheads reign in the Christian church, I would rather be a pig than a Christian. In other words, if you're telling me, Catholic Church, if you're telling me this is Christianity, I would rather be a pig than be called a Christian. They have treated the Jews as if they were dogs, not men, and as if they were fit for nothing but to be reviled. They are the blood relations of our Lord. Therefore, if we respect flesh and blood, the Jews belong to Christ more than we. I beg, therefore, my dear papists, if you become tired of abusing me as a heretic, that you begin to revile me as a Jew. Therefore, it is my advice that we should treat them kindly, But now we drive them by force, treating them deceitfully or ignominiously, saying they must have Christian blood to wash away the Jewish stain. And I know what not nonsense. In other words, that's complete idiocy to say Christian blood washes away the Jewish stain. 1523, we find Luther condemning the actions of the Christian church or the Catholic church at the time. Condemning its actions for the way it treated the Jewish people. And he calls on the church. What was he doing? He's a reformer. He was a Catholic priest. He's seeking to reform the Catholic church. What? And he calls them to treat them with kindness. That's what he's calling for. He's attempting to reform the church. The words that Luther penned here that we're reading, nobody would dispute they are filled with love and compassion. You read these words, and I can feel the sincerity pouring out of his heart. These are beautiful words. And this is the very mentality that is supported in Scripture. This is the examples we see of the first century church, how Jew and Gentile had come together as one new man in the Messiah, Yeshua. However, we find that as time went on, Luther's heart, it began to grow cold. Cold towards the Jewish people. I say this because just 20 years later, Just 20 years later, from writing these beautiful words, Luther authored a very different kind of book in stark contrast to his last book we covered. The book I'm referring to is The Jews and Their Lies. And we read, Doubt not, believed in Christ, that after the devil you have no more bitter, venomous, violent enemy than the real Jew. The Jew in earnest in his belief. Luther's tone had changed significantly. He is now calling the Jews the enemies of the Christians. And sadly, we find Luther, he had done what? He had reverted back to his papal roots. He had gone back. And he offers up 
seven simple steps on how to deal with the Jew. He says, let us set fire to their synagogues or schools. Second, I advise their houses also be razed and destroyed. Instead, they might be lodged under a roof or in a barn like gypsies. gypsies. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that the rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on the pain of loss of life and limb. Fifth, I advise the safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews. I advise that usury be prohibited to them and that all cash and treasure or, uh, of silver and gold be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. I recommend putting a flail and an axe, a hoe and a spade, a distaff or a spindle into the hands of young, strong Jews and Jewesses and letting them earn their bread in the sweat of their brow. And summing up this horrific Christian council, Luther says this, In brief, dear princes and lords, those of you who have Jews under your rule, if my counsel does not please, you find better advice so that you and we all can be rid of the unbearable devilish burden of the Jews. The father of Protestantism, the father of the Reformation had succumbed to the heretical child, that ideology of anti-Semitism. Instead of reforming the Catholic Church, we find Luther merely did what? He helped them lift up the torch and carry the burden. Let me give you another quote by Luther. He says, A Jew or a Jewish heart is as hard as stone and iron and cannot be moved by any means. In some, they are the devil's children damned to hell. What is so interesting here, and what I want to mention it's of the utmost importance. Why would the Jews appear to have a heart as hard as stone and iron? Maybe part of Luther's change towards the Jewish people was their lack of acceptance of the Jesus that was being proclaimed. I think that could be a very uh, safe assumption. But let's dig a little further. What was it that the Jews were not accepting? Why would he make a statement that their, their heart is a heart of stone? It's as hard as iron. What were they resisting? Was it the gospel of Yeshua? Did they hate this gospel that was going out? Did they hate all the stories where Yeshua, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, went out and had compassion on the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Is that what they hated? Did they hate where they saw and, and read and hear about all the wondrous deeds of healing the sick, raising the dead, casting demons out of people, making the deaf to hear, the mute to speak, the blind to see? Is this why they would resist the gospel of Yeshua? Did they hate the fact, the Jewish people, did they hate the fact that he was Torah observant? Did they hate the fact that he was a Jewish rabbi and he taught only to support the law? Matthew 5.17, do not think that I came to destroy the law. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For heaven and earth will pass, well, until hell and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by any means pass from the law. He taught Torah. Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Best commentary on the Torah you will ever read. Phenomenal. Beautiful. Bringing out the deeper spiritual meanings of Torah and these chapters. 
Is that what they hated? Is that what they were resisting? Did they hate maybe the purpose in his coming? To save them from their sins. To save them from their enemies. Is that why they resisted the message? Or, here's another theory, maybe they were disturbed by the type of Jesus that was being presented. Maybe the church was presenting a Gentile Jesus and not a Jewish Jesus. Maybe the Jews were offended at the church's portrayal of a Jesus who did away with the law, a Jesus who promoted lawlessness, one who said, it's okay to eat whatever you want. Go ahead and eat pork. Something a a, a self-respecting Jew, a Torah-observant Jew, would never do. Maybe they were disturbed at the idea that they were the ones alone who were responsible for killing Christ. And this is why they've been deemed century after century after century Christ killers. My point is this. Do you think maybe the church had a hand in why the Jews were not accepting Yeshua as Lord and Savior, as the Mashiach? I do. I do think they had a hand in it. You just look at history, and we're given plenty of reasons why the Jew would never accept the Jesus that was being presented. Now, this is not to say, I want to be very clear, this is not to say that everyone in the church was like the church. And this is not to say that, oh, this is, the, the church is totally responsible for every single living Jew on the earth. Could there have been Jews that would reject Yeshua in his glory? Yes. Yes. We saw even in the New Testament scriptures, there would be some. My point is, is the church needs to stand up and take significant responsibilities. Because they are not presenting the Yeshua that is found in the Bible. You're giving a Jew no chance, because no Jew is going to go after a Gentile Messiah. Dr. Brown, in his excellent book, The Real Kosher Jesus, where he came out in, uh, to uh, address the book that came out right before that, which was Shmuley Boteach's uh, Kosher Jesus, he gives a Jewish perspective in this book on the Christian religion from from an Orthodox Jew. I want to give you a perspective from an Orthodox Jew who is a very learned man and knows his history. Instead of bringing redemption to the Jews, the false Christian Messiah has brought down on us base liables and expulsions, oppressive restrictions and burning of our holy books, devastations and destructions. Christianity, which professes to infuse this sick world with love and compassion, has fixed a course directly opposed to this lofty rhetoric. The voice of the blood of millions of our brothers cries out to us from the ground. Now remember, the church, and she has admitted and confessed it, is responsible for slaying millions of Jews in the name of Christ. This is what he's referring to. No, Christianity is not a religion of love, but a religion of unfathomable hate. All history from ancient times to our own day is one continuous proof of the total bankruptcy of this religion in all its segments. That's a perspective that you need to let sink into your mind. Listen to what Dr. Hugh Schoenfield, he mirrors exactly what this man says in his book, The History of Jewish Christianity. Considering the persecution which the Jews in Europe endured at Christian hands and the corrupt state of the Christian religion. Did you catch that? The corrupt state of the Christian religion. In other words, it was not operating the way it should be. It is a great wonder that there were any sincere converts at all. 
Instead of the love of Christ, the Jews saw only undying hatred. The methods which were employed in his attempted conversion could not but confirm him in his detestation of so barbarous a faith. Ask yourself, has the church successfully in its history represented Yeshua, the Jewish rabbi, the Jewish king, the root of David, the line of Judah, have they represented him correctly to the Jewish people? If we look at history, the answer is no, they haven't. This is not to say that no one in past history has presented him accurately. On a macro scale, the church has failed. This may not be what you want to hear, but this is the truth. So often the church went out teaching and preaching a Jesus that was not found in the Bible. They were preaching a different Jesus, one that to a Jew was totally foreign. They would never accept. Yehezekiel Kaufman, he was a professor at Hebrew University in the early 1900s, one of the greatest biblical scholars of his generation, has this to say, it is the opinion of Avraham Geiger and Shlomo Graz and other Jewish scholars and also many more liberal Christian scholars that Jesus was wholly Jewish in outlook. Jesus did not intend to break with tradition or to found a new religion. And certainly he did not imagine that he was founding a religion of the Gentiles. In other words, the Jesus that is found in the Bible, he is wholly Jewish. He was a Jewish rabbi, and he never intended to create a new religion, a religion of the Gentiles. What Yeshua did was break down the middle wall of separation, giving the Gentiles an opportunity to be grafted into the natural tree of Israel, Romans 11. What Yeshua did was offer the Gentiles an opportunity to be called sons and daughters of the kingdom of heaven. How? Through faith in the Jewish Messiah. As expressed by Rabbi Ben Zion Boxer in 1967, he says this, The Jesus of history was a son of his people who shared their dreams, who was loyal to their way of life, who died a martyr's death because of the commitment to his vision of their highest destiny. The image of Jesus as depicted in Christian writings was not founded on historical reality. How true that is, unfortunately. God have mercy upon our souls because of what the church has done, all in the name of Jesus. The church has blood on its hands. And we who uphold the name of Yeshua, you who fear the Lord with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, we have to know the history. We have to acknowledge it. But that's not everything. That's only going halfway. You need to condemn it. We need to be lights to the world, right? We need to make the wrongs right. The elect of God have an obligation to present Yeshua accurately to both the Jew and Gentile. We have an obligation to present the word of God accurately to the Jew and to the Gentile. And we're to go out and do what the Apostle Paul told us to do. 2 Timothy 4.2 Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Convince, rebuke, exhort. This is the formula. Convince, rebuke, exhort. You get that, you're going to be a disciple of Yeshua. In other words, look at Paul's life. He went out and convinced. 
And what did he say? He scared the tar out of people, right? 2 Corinthians 5, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. He went out scaring people, convincing them what it was to follow. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Rebuke. That's the rebuke. And what do you do after that? Exhort. What is that? Comfort. You comfort them. The strong are to bear with the weak, right? We're to lift them up. We're to encourage one another daily, lest we be deceived by the hardness of sin, lest we let sin into our heart and we be deceived. We are literally to follow this example of what Paul's talking about. I want to change my tone a little bit here. <laughs> because I want to end today on a positive note. All right? Because the last three weeks have been very depressing for me. And, uh, but it's not a reality I'm willing to close my eyes at. You know, I've been pretty... I've been, beaten pretty hard upon the church, but I, I want you to know there is good news. The church appears to be waking up to her transgressions. People from all different denominations across the board are waking up to the events that have taken place over the course of history. They're even waking up to things like the Sabbath and the festivals of God. It is amazing. The Spirit of God is moving. Even to the point that we find that there are churches out there offering apologies for their treatment of the Jewish people. Let me give you some examples, because these are just beautiful. 1998, the Lutheran Church of Bavaria, Lutheran, had this to say. It is imperative for the Lutheran Church, which knows itself to be indebted to the work and the tradition of Martin Luther, to take seriously also his anti-Jewish utterances, to acknowledge their theological function and to reflect on their consequences. It has to distance itself from every expression of anti-Judaism in Lutheran theology. In other words, they're saying, we want nothing to do with the anti-Semitic behavior that we found later in Luther's life. We don't want to go there. Volume 1 of Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, Dr. Brown, he articulates how Luther's disdain for the Jews, his anti-Semitic behavior, it wasn't acceptable to everyone at that time. Yes, Luther was a pioneer and the masses would go with him, but listen to what he says. Luther's closest colleague, Philip Melanchthon, was very unhappy with these feminist writings, while another colleague, Andreas Osiander, wrote an anonymous apology for them, and Luther's Latin translator, Justin Jonas, actually changed the text when he translated it. In each of the succeeding centuries, the 16th through the 19th, Luther's hateful anti-Jewish writings were repudiated, while his earlier pro-Jewish writings proved to be the more influential. This is the integral part of the story that is often untold. The verdict of Lutheran theologian Friedrich Lysias, written in 1892, sums up the feelings of many Lutheran leaders during a period of more than 350 years of Lutheran practice and belief. It is obvious that Luther does not argue in accordance with the spirit of the New Testament and the Reformation. In other words, Friedrich just said, listen, these words that are coming out of his mouth, they do not agree with what we read in our New Testament. The Protestant church has therefore rejected the heirs of the aging reformer and, has not binding, and is not binding uh, for the church and only regards Luther's treatise that Jesus Christ was born Jew. 
which was published in 1523 as the true expression of the spirit of the Reformation. And we read those words today. And that is the true spirit of the New Testament. Those words we read. Even the Catholic Church has acknowledged her sins against the Jewish people. The Guardian did an article says this, saving one of his most audacious initiatives for the twilight of his papacy, John Paul II yesterday attempted to purify the soul of the Roman Catholic Church by making a sweeping apology for 2,000 years of violence, persecution, and blunders. Defying warnings from some theologians that the unprecedented apology would undermine the church's authority, the 79-year-old pontiff asked God to forgive the persecution of the Jews. We are deeply saddened by the behavior of those who in the course of history have caused these children of yours to suffer. And asking your forgiveness, we wish to commit ourselves to genuine brotherhood. Over and over again, we're seeing a movement from the 1970s, as it were, forward, a movement of what? Repentance. A, a, a revival of acknowledgement and condemnation for such behavior. So fascinating that if you go back to the 1970s, what was happening at this time? The Messianic movement was growing like wildfire. People were starting to discover their Hebraic roots. The Jewish people were coming back to faith in the Messiah Yeshua, and the Gentiles were coming back with them. This is Amazing. You want to wonder if we're in the last days or not? Don't wonder. Even the Presbyterian Church, I want to give you different examples. Lutheran, Catholic, Presbyterian. Look at these beautiful words of repentance they had to say. The Council on Theology and Culture of the Presbyterian Church in the United States has shown an act of kindness to the Jewish people. Their 1983 General Assembly issued a paper titled Christians and Jews, a Unique Relationship. Article 3, paragraphs 1 and 3 states, We confess our past uh, perpetuation of the teaching of contempt for the Jews, our labeling them as a decide rice and Christ killers, our insistence on their forced conversions, and our attempts to justify such actions by resort to Holy Scripture. We disavow and repudiate such tactics for the future. Christ Christians have created attitudes and done deeds that have led to the vilification of Judaism and the persecution of the Jews. We repudiate such actions as denials of the teachings of Yeshua and the life to which he calls his followers. We make this confession not only out of shame for the past, but in hope that God will use us in creation of a humane future for the Jews and all people. This is quite a statement. You know, one of the things going back, we take it back to the root. Where did this all really begin in the early 2nd century? What happened? They divided law from the gospel, right? The cancer went out and infected the whole mass of the faith, and out of that, this mother, I would call her the mother of divide, she birthed heretical children. She birthed heretical doctrines. She divided the Jew from the Gentile. She gave birth to the child anti-Semitism. And now, we're starting to see what? An awakening. The Spirit of God is coming upon people, opening their eyes, bringing them back into the truth, destroying the works 
of Satan. It's a very beautiful time we are living in, but we do live in a very wicked, wicked generation. We're going to end here for today. The music team can come back up. Next week, I am going to be, um, I'm gonna, this is going to be the last, next week will be the last one of this series. And something that we're going to talk about is in fact, um, things to expect about coming and discovering your Hebrew roots. Things I want to warn you about uh, that can happen when you come into this movement. Um, because Satan is definitely coming after us. Uh, because anytime you wield the truth, he's going to come after you. You're on his grid. So, Shabbat Shalom. Thank you.